If you have a Bible, I invite you to look with me in the book of Revelation. We're going to look at chapter 2 this morning, verses 1 through 7. So if you're a copy of the scriptures, you can look there. The word should also be on the screen behind me that we're going to read this morning and study together. So before I get to that, <clears throat> I just want to remind you, just want to do a quick review. So last week we looked at Revelation chapter 1. Does that sound familiar? And the big takeaway of chapter 1 was this. Buy an Instapot and start using it, right? Do I remember that? That was the primary, no, that wasn't the primary takeaway. But some of you told me that, and I got pictures and videos this week of the Instapod at your house, and that, it was hilarious. So thank you for doing that. I really appreciate it. Chapter one is functions like a trailer, right, to the rest of the book. So when you look back over chapter one, what you are reminded is this, that in verse 19 of chapter one, John tells us that he writes things about the past, the present, and the future. So Revelation is not talking about things that are all past, nor is it talking about everything that's all future. It's past, present, and future. Then you might remember this, that another aspect of this trailer is found in verse 3, that God gave us this book to be a blessing, a blessing. So if you read it, you are blessed. If you hear it, you are blessed. If you follow what it says, you are understanding God's blessing. The book of Revelation is not written to scare you. It is not written to fan the flame of all the fear that you make decisions by. It is written to bless you. And finally, the book is written to focus our attention, the attention of our hearts on the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why the book of Revelation in chapter 1 verse 1 starts with this phrase. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. God is billboarding for us what he wants us to focus our hearts on, the revelation of Jesus Christ. So last week we looked at those things. I hope that sounds somewhat familiar. And yes, there was an Instapot in there, but hopefully you remember that. Chapters two and three, which we're going to look at over the next four weeks, we're taking a little bit of a shift. It's connected to chapter one. But what happens in these chapters, two and three, are this, that God is identifying for us four struggles that the church always has. So in these two chapters, we're going to learn together four struggles that the church always has. And this morning, in the first seven verses of chapter two, we are going to be looking at the first struggle together. And this first struggle is the one that all the other struggles are connected to. So all the other three are anchored in this one. And here's the struggle we're going to look at this morning. We'll read it together in verse 4. That we forsake our first love. That happens to us. Still does. We forget our first love. So that's a review of chapter one, a little snapshot of where we're going the next four weeks. And I want to read to you the first seven verses. And one more thing before I read is this. This is going to be super quick. Here are the pastors that um, pastored these churches, uh, in, that pastored the church in Ephesus. Just to, if you know the scriptures, this might resonate with you a little bit. The apostle Paul planted the church at Ephesus. After that, he had Timothy, if I'm not mistaken, who was very young, probably his first gig, became the pastor of the church. While he was there, there was a guy named Apollos who was also teaching at the church. If you read the New Testament, you'll find out Apollos was a phenomenal teacher. And then the final pastor they had that we know of 
was this guy named the Apostle John, the author of the book of Revelation, the human author. As if to say, they had Paul, they had Timothy, they had Apollos, and they had the Apostle John. That was their pastor. Those were their pastors. And from when John left this church in Ephesus, that's when he went to the, be exiled at Patmos. So he was probably in his late 80s. Could you imagine that? So anyway, that's their lineage of pastors. Quite remarkable, isn't it? All right, so listen to this, verse one through seven. This is God's word. Take it in. Don't get tired of hearing the word of God. This is life for you and me. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Remember the lampstands are the church, remember? Defined last chapter. I know your works, verse two. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake for you have not grown weary. But I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers... I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you that we can meet here, even in this semi-strange way, but we still get to hear your word. We are free to confess our sins to you. We are, we are able to receive your assurance of pardon. We are able to declare, Jesus, that you are our only hope in life and death. And God, we thank you so much that we are able to still hear your word. So help us to not waste this time. Help us not to be distracted by coming here thinking that we're going to learn tips to live by and, and ways to better ourselves. Help us to be present here because we want to hear your good news. Holy Spirit, grant us ears to hear what you want to say. The words we just read in these verses, grant us ears, enable us to hear what you want to tell us because we know you want to focus us on Jesus. So do that. Focus us on Jesus, for we pray in his name. Amen. As we look at these two chapters together, and in particular these first seven verses, if we are going to connect deeply with these chapters and with this section in particular, if we are going to connect deeply to these verses, we need to have two things on the forefront of our minds. So I know that you probably have a lot going on thinking about things, I get that. But if you can, I want you to put these two things on the forefront of your mind. The first one is this. Writing letters is a lost art, isn't it? Have that in the forefront of your mind. Writing letters is a lost art. We don't do it anymore. We hardly get letters anymore. 
I'm not talking thank you cards. I'm talking letters with hand and with pen, with paper. It's a lost art. Have that in the forefront of your mind. Second, I want you to really think and reflect about how you grew up. I want you to have on the forefront of your mind how you grew up. Most of us grew up in homes in which our parents never admitted that they were wrong. Most of us grew up in homes in which it was really, really hard for our parents to ever say that they did anything wrong with any type of specificity. Most of us grew up in homes in which our opinions really didn't matter because those that were in authority over us were pressing down their opinions on us. Sometimes that's good, but not to the point that our opinions don't matter at all, right? Most of us grew up in homes in which when problems happened, it just got kind of swept under the rug. Things really didn't get dealt with. Then at times there would be massive explosions in large part because we didn't grow up in a home that dealt with problems. Most of us grew up in homes where either one of these two things happened, and both of them could actually happen in different situations. If you grew up in a home in which, well, I'll say it this way, some of us grew up in homes in which we never knew where we stood. We didn't know whether or not we were respected or or loved or going to be cared for. We just didn't know where we stood. We didn't know how, where we stood with our brothers or sisters, or we didn't know where we really, really stood with our parents. Others of us grew up in homes in which we were, which it was very clear where we stood because the expectations were very clearly laid out, which means if we met those expectations, then we knew we were stood, where we stood, we knew we were Okay. What that meant is that we grew up in a home where love was conditional. Because you get outside of meeting those expectations and there's a problem, right? Most of us grew up in homes in which being critiqued was a whole lot easier and happened a whole lot more than being encouraged. So most of us know what it's like to live under a lot of scrutiny all the time. Because we felt like our parents never really knew how to encourage us. They, but they really knew how to point out things that we were thinking that were wrong or doing that were wrong. Some of us had phenomenal teachers, and coaches, maybe even some bosses that did far more for us than we can ever begin to express. The reason why we need to keep those two things on the forefront of our mind is this. Jesus is writing us a letter. Seven of them. When you read these two chapters, we get seven letters from Jesus himself. We get to read his own writing of what he's saying and how he's communicating and what he wants and what he thinks. And I know that when we go through these letters, it might be a, it might be a little uncomfortable. It might be a little unusual. 
because most of us grew up with such dysfunctional relationships that many of us are still trying to work through. And because we grew up with super dysfunctional relationships, hearing this and reading this and thinking about these letters from Jesus can be very, very uncomfortable and very, very unnatural. But I want you to know, no one ever relates to us and deals with us in a healthier way than Jesus. No one. No one. Jesus consistently, faithfully, always, perfectly deals with us in a healthy way. Always. But I know our backgrounds are such dysfunction that it's hard for us to really even hear that. So I just want to know, I would just want to say on the front end, I know this may be uncomfortable, but it's okay because it's Jesus. What Jesus does in this letter, in, the, in these letters, is this He encourages and He confronts. So that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at His encur- encouragement and we're going to look at how He confronts. So here's what Jesus does to encourage us. Remember, he is in the midst of the churches. Verse 1 tells you that he is walking in the midst of the churches, which is to say, hey, Jesus is all up in your business. He's reading your inbox. He knows everything about you. He knows what's going on in your mind. He knows what's going on in your heart. He knows what's on your calendar. He knows what's coming up. He knows everything about you. He's in the middle of your life. Nothing escapes him. Nothing surprises him. He's in the middle of life with you. He's in the midst of his people. He's in the midst of his church. He's not distracted. He's not far away. He's in the middle. And he writes this to encourage you. Look at verse 1 and look at verse 3. This is how we encourage you. This is the first way. He says, I see you working. I see your toil. I see you patiently enduring. At the end of verse 3, I see you doing all those things without being weary. Jesus is saying, I see you. And this is where you get to interact among all kinds of other ways with a sermon by thinking about everything that's going on in your life right now and the struggles that you're having, the joys that you're having, and you need to be reminded that Jesus sees everything that's happening. And he is so thankful for what you're doing. He's so thankful for your work. He's so thankful for your patient endurance. He's so thankful that there are areas of your life where you are not growing weary. Because my hunch is there are areas where you are. So that means those of you that are struggling and trying to understand how do I parent my children? How do I parent my child? Jesus sees you. Thank you for trying to figure out how to love your children well. He sees you. Those of you that are struggling in your work, struggling at your job, struggling with a boss, struggling to figure out what do I want to do with my life, he sees you and he is thankful that you're thinking about your work with him in mind. Whatever challenges you are facing, He's there with you. He see the, the, the times when you, when you know that you don't have the wisdom that you need and you're crying out to him for help. The times in which you are enduring something that perhaps is unjust or the times in which you're, you're enduring just a difficult season. He sees you and he's thankful for you. 
And he's trying to encourage you by saying, I'm right there with you. Keep going. Don't grow weary in well-doing. Continue to try to figure out how do I live out my faith Monday through Saturday. Continue to bring your struggles to him. Continue to patiently endure. Keep going. This is the second thing that Jesus says to encourage us. He identifies that this church in particular was really good at identifying and walking away from false teaching. If you look around verse 6, I think, or 5, he even mentions a specific teaching that was tied to a group of people, the Nicolaitans. Then he's saying, here's some other way I want to encourage you. Thank you for understanding the truth to such an extent that you are willing to receive other teaching and be exposed to other teaching and you are able to determine that that other teaching does not line up with the word of God, with the gospel, with the way God wants you to look at that issue, the way God wants you to look at the world. Jesus is saying, thank you for thinking that doctrine is important. Thank you for thinking that good teaching is really, really important. Thank you in particular for being able to say that is true and that is not. Thank you for being able to identify this is a false teacher, this is a false prophet. Thank you. Doctrine is really, really important. And if you've been in an environment that says that it's not important, let me tell you, Jesus is encouraging his church for thinking that doctrine is really important. And we need to continue to understand good teaching and we need to continue to understand theology, the study of God and, what, and who God is and what he says in his word. That's really, really important. And Jesus is encouraging his people in that way. Do you feel encouraged? I hope you do. Because he writes this to encourage you. Keep going, keep learning, keep struggling. Continue to try to figure out how to live your life in a fallen world that's really broken and messed up. Keep going. But Jesus also confronts the church, doesn't he? Look at verse 4. Again, this is a struggle that the church always has. He says, but you have forsaken your first love. In other words, Jesus is saying, look, you are really good at identifying false teaching. But love, on the other hand, eh, not so much. You're able to express and identify when something doesn't line up with the Bible, but yet this whole thing about love, you're struggling with that one. And you see, with Jesus and with God, it's not either or. We don't get to pick whether we want to talk about love and understand love or talk about doctrine and emphasize, and emphasize doctrine. Jesus is not saying this is either or. He's saying it's both and. We need to continue to understand good doctrine and continue to learn what the scripture says. And at the same time, we need to grow in love. We need to not forsake our first love in other words, Jesus is telling the church, he's telling us that we have a tendency in our lives to elevate doctrine at the expense of loving others. 
so that we can think, you know, now that I've become a follower of Jesus and now that I'm trying to follow him, I just need to focus on teaching and I need to ignore this thing called love because I've kind of moved on past that. Because now I'm just going to get smarter. Now I'm going to get more educated. Now I'm just going to know a whole lot more things. And Jesus is saying, no. Keep learning. But don't forget your first love. Don't forget what it was like when I broke into your life and I forgave you. Don't forget what happened when I entered into your life and showed you who you really are and who I really am and what I've done for you through Jesus. Don't forget the gospel. Connect all of your doctrine to the gospel itself such that they are not distinguishable. So that whatever teaching you're understanding is connected to the gospel. So that whatever gospel you're learning connects to your life and issues. Have to have both. Now when we think about this church, we need to understand and need to be reminded, and and perhaps you've forgotten this, this church at Ephesus, like this is a church that we really deeply resonate with. Let's not forget that. Like these are our people. This was the church that, that had elders and deacons. We get with that. We think that's really important. Just like Ephesus. This was the church that, that loved to talk about the sovereign love of God, his election, his predestinating love, that salvation is by grace. Guess what? We love that and eat that up. We are a church that loves election and loves predestination and loves the grace of God. Just like Ephesus. This is a church that saw their vision as the reality that Jesus was coming again to reunite all things in heaven and on earth. Man, I'm excited about that too. It's explicitly laid out in verse roughly 9 or 10 of chapter 1 of Ephesians. This was the kind of church that believed in one baptism. Not five, not six, one. That's us. This is the kind of church that thought about issues of of race. Thought about issues of loving people more than others because we think that these people are superior through the lens of the gospel without politicizing it, but connecting the gospel to how we think about those issues. This was the kind of church that loved to have children in worship. Remember Paul writes this letter to the church at Ephesus and even addresses the children. Why would he do that? Because they were present. So we love it when our children are in worship. It means a lot. We don't think of our children as something that's put aside and segregated to themselves. We love having our children involved in worship whenever they can. It's good for them to be here with us. We deeply resonate with this church. These were the folks that realized that sin meant death, spiritually speaking, to God. Like sin was really, they understood sin really deeply. When we sinned, it brought about death. And what happened through the gospel is that we were brought to life. And that we didn't bring ourselves to life, God did it. God is the one that touched our lives first. We so get with and love that kind of teaching. We love that. This was the kind of church that we really deeply resonate with. Don't you think we got the same struggle too? And oh, by the way, the fact that the church at Ephesus would struggle with this 
prioritizing teaching over love, it makes complete sense why they would have this struggle. Remember, many of them grew up in a society in which society was about satisfying all their pleasures. Like, orgies were a common normative thing in Ephesus, among all kinds of other things. These were people that grew up thinking that they could satisfy every desire they had and try to find happiness and worth through satisfying whatever desire is present on my mind right now. That was their background. That was their story. They was all tied into their gods, thinking that we could satisfy gods by satisfying our own pleasure, that gods will produce what we want. And then God broke into their life and radically changed them, brought them literally from spiritual death to spiritual life. And it makes complete sense how they would begin to emphasize doctrine and teaching and think that that's the most important thing. I bet many of you can resonate with this. How many of you grew up in which you lived a radical life, just satisfying whatever desires you have, thinking whatever you want to think, living for the moment, and then all of a sudden God got a hold of you and you went from one side of the spectrum all the way to the other. You went from just satisfying desires and being emotionally whatever, doing whatever you emotionally wanted to do, and then God stepped in and then you became a little bit more rigid than you were before. That happened? That's what happened with the church here at Ephesus. It makes total sense why they would go from satisfying everything to, I'm gonna be real serious about this teaching thing now. And then you add on top of that persecution that there were people who were literally hunting them down and potentially killing them because of their following the Lord Jesus. Of course it makes sense that they were emphasizing teaching. Of course it makes sense. Because a lot of us have lived the exact same pattern. We went from being wild to being radically changed and then becoming a little bit more careful with our decisions and a little bit more intentional with how we lived our lives. In other words, we became a little bit rigid. If nothing else compared to how we used to be. And then you add that people are after me for what I believe. Of course I'm going to emphasize teaching. It makes sense. Let's not hate on them too much. Jesus certainly isn't at all. You see, we can do the same, we can have the same struggles they did. It may express itself in different ways, but we can have the exact same struggle. We need to be confronted for the exact same thing is what I'm saying. Because we can look at people and think, you know what? People at the end of the day are just brains on sticks. So, we just need to feed their brain. And when we feed their brain with good stuff, they'll be better people. In other words, your life, every problem in your life can just be fixed by a little more precise theology. So whatever's going on in your life, if you just had better theology, that could help fix your problem. And then we can go even further and start thinking, you know what? The most mature people in their walk with Christ are those who know the most. So that... Growth can be tied to knowledge so that the more knowledge you have, the more mature you are. And Jesus is saying, no, that is a problem. Because often what happens is that we begin to just think of ourselves again as a brain on a stick. 
And the more we know, the more mature we are, the, the better we are, and the more our problems will be fixed in our lives. But then you live and you realize, well, that's not really the case at all. Doesn't really work that way. And Jesus is saying you need to continue to learn and grow and understand good doctrine and value good doctrine. Really, really important. But don't forsake your first love. Don't disconnect that teaching from the gospel itself and the fact that God has set his love upon you and God has acted on you first. Don't forget that. Maybe to try to put a fine point on this struggle that the church is having that we have, maybe we can say it like this. That the church at Ephesus and the people in Ephesus and, and, and us too, we have a tendency when we approach people and when we approach life, to put evaluation prior to empathy. And Jesus is saying, I want empathy to be prior to evaluation. In other words, if you start with empathy, then you begin to approach people and you begin to approach situations in your life and you, be able, and you approach things that you have authority over and responsibility for, that you begin to approach things first with empathy. Because if you're in a place of empathy and starting with empathy, it means you listen before you start talking. It means that you're willing to receive something from someone else before you start evaluating. It means that you start facing people and pursuing people through the lens of, oh, well, tell me about that. And you might find out how similar that we are to each other. We also might find out that there are people that express things and have gone through things that we never have. So to start with empathy means that we are willing to put ourselves in a posture of listening and learning and asking questions. Then, when it's relationally appropriate, comes the evaluation. But what's happening at Ephesus is that they were evaluating everyone and they had no empathy. And maybe a more subtle way that we can do this, other than the easy things of just brains on sticks and if you want to grow more, you just learn more and you measure your growth by how much you know. Those are obvious, but maybe a more subtle way we do this is this. If you really look at your relationships and you really think about your life this past week, maybe by God's grace you'll think about your life this coming week, you might realize how oftentimes we manufacture conversations with people so that we can communicate what we think is true or wise or appropriate. That's a subtle way of approaching people thinking, you know what, I'm just here to fix you. That's a subtle way of communicating that, you know, my life is really about, you know, me telling you how to do things. Because if that's the way we approach our relationships, where we're just manufacturing conversations because we really want to get to what we want to communicate, that means people are just a project. We got an agenda for every single conversation. And rather than being empathetic, which doesn't mean you have to agree, but rather than being empathetic to approaching people and prioritizing empathy first, 
We can just end up thinking that we're better than everyone else. And we're going through our lives just kind of really proving how right we are, how wise we are, how much better we are. Jesus is confronting us too. Now, if you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus, like if you're here this morning and you're really frustrated with the church, or you're frustrated with Christianity, or you're frustrated with Christians, or you're frustrated with God, because your life experience in the church has been how the church has gotten distracted, that they've been interested in things and prioritizing things that perhaps they shouldn't have, or if you're really frustrated with the church because in your own experience you felt as though God's people really are unloving, not only are they, are they distracted about all these things that I really don't care about at all, which is a completely other discussion, but you just know that they're just not very loving and don't seem to care at all about you. If that's been your experience, you must hear this, these seven verses, and you must be thinking to yourself, man, I am sitting courtside watching Jesus just jump off the top rope and just take it to these people. Like he is saying everything to his people that I think. He's telling them that they're not being very loving at all. And here's what I want to say to you. If that's been your experience in the church, first of all, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. But what you have used as a barrier, meaning God's people are unloving, if you are using that as a barrier to keep you from Jesus or to keep you from the church or to keep you from God, you have got to see that that very thing, the fact that God's people are unloving, is the very thing that Jesus comes after in his people because he loves them. It is not a barrier for him. He's encouraging them and, knows that, and know that, knows that they have a lot of room to grow like we all do, and he's coming right after us. So what you want to use as a barrier is, a, it is summoning Jesus' love to come and deal with us. So don't let it be a barrier. Look at how Jesus is dealing with it. Look how he is confronting us and loving us and confronting us because he loves us. In other words, I'll say it this way. Don't forget who's writing this letter. Don't forget it's Jesus. And don't forget that he's the one that has lived and died and rose from the dead and is in heaven ruling and reigning. Don't forget it's that Jesus that is saying these things because he loves people like you and me who have a tendency to misprioritize things who have a tendency at times to even think that doctrine and teaching is more important than the gospel, more important than the love that we knew when we first came to Jesus. Jesus is writing this letter because he loves, because he knows exactly how to fix and address and correct. It's why he tells us to repent. Because he really wants, to think, he wants us to think about our lives and think about how we're living and thinking about, are we just busy manufacturing conversations with people? Do we put empathy before evaluation all the time? Or are we just constantly evaluating and rarely get to the empathy part? 
Jesus is writing all of this because he cares. And he tells us to repent because he wants us to think. Remember, repentance doesn't merit God's favor. Repentance shows that the love of God has touched us. Repentance illustrates that God is working in us. It's not that repentance merits anything from God. It shows that we have the love of God. Repentance is where we get to say, God, this is where I need you. Repentance is how we verbalize, God, this is where I see that your grace has touched me because I can see how I've abused your grace. I can see how I've twisted your truth. And thank you. Jesus, I'm reminded you are enough again. That my repentance isn't making me better. Jesus, you're making me better. And do you see where Jesus ends all of this? He tells us to repent, which is something that we should be doing all the time, right? Repentance is a normal thing for sinners. And then he ends with the tree of life. Did you notice that in the last verse? He says, to those that overcome, I will give you the tree of life. Well, when Jesus says to those that overcome, he's not saying, okay, get busy now, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and overcome this particular struggle that you have. The only way we overcome is through the blood. The only way we overcome is through Jesus. So unless we're taking our lives to Jesus, we will never overcome anything. But through the blood of Jesus, we take our our lives and we look at them and we think through them and we follow Jesus through his blood. His blood is what enables us to change. It's where we have any power at all. So Jesus is pulling us right back into the four-part story. Remember this from last year? Where do you see the tree of life? Genesis, at creation. Where do you see it again? At the end of the book of Revelation in paradise with God? Jesus is taking us back through the four-part story to say, look, you were made to live in communion and fellowship with God. You were made to eat from the tree of life where God is right there. You were made to live with him, but yet you rebelled. And that rebellion looks an awful lot like disordering your loves and prioritizing things that ought not have priority. But because of me, because of my blood, you can overcome and you can change. And the day's coming in which you really will eat of the fruit of the tree of life for real. And you'll be with God forever. So don't ever forget, this is how you were made. Your rebellion is real. My redemption is powerful. And restoration is coming.